There's only a few days left in 2014. And as you reflect on the year that's gone by, you might be thinking, hey, there was a number of things that I had planned to accomplish in this calendar year that I just didn't get around to doing. Things in myself, ways that I was planning to improve. And so now as 2015 sets up, you're, you're thinking of a new resolution, a new line in the sand, a new commitment that you're going to keep for yourself. And in the next couple of days, you're, you're going to put that together and, and try to live 2015 according to this resolution. One resolution I've been making over the last number of years, the decades since I've been 18, is to get in better shape. And many of you will agree that that's probably something you want to do. And I know that I'm not standing up here looking, um, I don't know, maybe like I need to lose a lot of pounds. It's not that. But I always remember when I was 18 and the things I could do, how high I could jump, how fast I could run, how, uh, how long I could stay awake, these kind of things. And so every year I always think one way to make the coming year better for myself would be to, to get in better shape, to jog, to exercise, to get to the gym. I usually make the same resolution every year, get to the gym on Monday and Friday or Saturday. And it's, it becomes very specific. I write it into my calendar. I say Monday at 2 o'clock, Saturday at 11 o'clock, maybe Friday when work gets slow or something like that. And I try to keep it out. I'm one of those people in the gym in January that they talk about. They're taking up the treadmills. They're using up the weight machines. They're just throwing everybody's rhythm off. And I do that for about two months. And then I'm done. Because working out's really hard, and I'm not in shape, and it doesn't make it any easier any, any, year, any time that I get older. And it turns out that when I hold myself accountable to my own resolution, I'm pretty lenient with myself. I accept my excuses really fast. Things like, ooh, this is heavy. Okay, don't lift that, right? Oh, I'm tired. Well, you should stay home. Oh, the gym is so far away. Well, you shouldn't bother to go. And I'm, I'm very lenient. So when it's up to me, I don't keep my own resolutions. I find that uh, when I want to improve at something, I actually need a trainer. I need someone to be in charge of what I'm doing. So what I never do in any given year is I never do um, the thing where you buy a personal trainer. Because then you're on the hook. Then you're committed. That person becomes the king of my fitness level. That person becomes the leader of my training. And then they told me accountable, saying, you're going to show up on Monday, you're going to show up on Friday, and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to make you sweat, and I'm going to make you lift stuff, and I'm going to make you run, and you won't get out of this until I say you're done. And that's not really the resolution I want to make. I just want to do something for the moment. I don't really want a new king of my fitness level. I don't really want someone else in charge. I'm not often actually looking for a new leader at the end of the year. I'm just looking to make some improvements. Well, if this works in my physical life, if I get a trainer, if I get a, a new king of my fitness, I suspect that this kind of thing also works in my spiritual life. That I make resolutions, but I actually don't want to have a new king. I just want to make some improvements, and maybe for the first two months of 2015, I'll do that. But come March, I'm back to myself, the way, I'm normally, the, the way I normally am. So in order to get beyond what we do with resolutions, the Bible offers us a different word that we need to be thinking about as we head into 2015. And many of you here, being Christians, you know this word. It's the word repentance. It's actually a change of mind. Not something you think to yourself, not a, not a, a commitment you make to yourself, but a change of mind, which represents a commitment to follow a completely different king. A commitment to follow the king that we've been singing about this morning, Jesus Christ, the baby that grew up to be the savior and lord of the whole world. So when I make a resolution, I resolve something to myself, but when I repent, I repent because I recognize there's a God and he has authority over my life. And I choose his mindset about my life and the things that I'm doing instead of my own judgments. And I will succeed as a Christian because when God is the king of my life, he's not looking for my excuses. He's not going to accept my, my lenient ways with myself. He's expecting me and he's going to show up in my life to help me follow through. In 2015, I'm sure that's what you need to be different than 2014. You need a little bit more follow-through in your life. It's easy to talk about resolutions like how big your stomach's going to be or how much beard you're going to grow or, um, you know, you know how, how much kale you're going to eat if you're one of those dietary people. You know, there's all these sorts of things that really don't touch the heart of who we are. But we need follow-through in these spiritual matters. 
And that's what Christ came to help us with. We'll let ourselves off the hook, but God will keep us on track and accountable. At Christmas, we celebrated Christ as a savior, but we must always recognize that he came to be our leader. He didn't come only as a sacrifice, he came to be sovereign. He didn't come only to lay his life down, he came to lift our lives up. The kid we sing about at Christmas must be the king we live for every day for the rest of this year. Behind me, you're looking at a map, which has to do with the passage I want to show you this morning, Luke chapter 3. This is the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth. On the right, it's the Mediterranean Sea in the middle, and on the right is, is the promised land. You might be able to make out the words Jerusalem in the bottom corner. You can see that when Jesus came to rule, he was just a small child in the midst of a vast empire, and it's bizarre that a king would, would start his journey here to try to take on this entire system called the Roman Empire. But it's true. Um, this is the narrative we're going to study today, and it's from here that we get this call that it's time for a new king. That's what I'm calling my sermon today. It's time for a new king. And John, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, was announcing this message. And he called people to recognize Christ's authority and the expectation he had on them for their righteousness. John's message was saying, it's, there's a new king in town. He wasn't announcing it to everybody, but he was telling the people of God, there's a new king. And Luke writes about John's ministry so that we understand that Jesus was more than a sacrifice, that he was always meant to be king over us and for us. So John's ministry was to transition the people to get them ready, to prepare them, to make them ready to receive Christ. Now I know many of you would sit in these pews and would say, I've already made that decision. I've already chosen God, that's why I'm here. But it is possible, because I know it's possible with me, and I, I know it's possible with God's people. It's possible that you might be here for different reasons, not because Christ is your king, but out of resolution more than repentance. A resolution to be a better person, a resolution to be a better Christian, a, better, a resolution to be a better member of Calvary Baptist Church, to get involved, to help out more, to give back to society. And you might not really, really have thought recently about what it is that you need to turn over to Christ. You might actually hesitate at the idea of a new king in your life. You might be saying, what's wrong with the old kings? What's wrong with the present leaders I follow? What's wrong with just, with just having a couple pastors in my life? What's, what's wrong with just kind of listening to a, a few sermons online or having a couple books or a couple philosophers or gurus that I can kind of pick and choose from? You might look at your life and say, hey, as I look back over 2014, I don't see a lot of failure. I don't see a lot of mistakes. I'm getting along pretty good. I'm doing okay. What's wrong with my life? Why would I need a new king? Maybe if that's you, you're looking at Jesus not as a king but only as a consultant. When I go to the gym, there are trainers there, and I'll ask them, how do I use the weights? I won't say, give me a program. It's a very different use of them, the consultant. You'll look at your life and say, hey, you know, repentance is about sin, but as I look at my life in 2014, I don't see a lot of sin. I don't see a lot of sinfulness back there. Maybe I don't need to repent. Maybe I just need to make a few resolutions this year. Maybe just things to be a little bit better, a little nicer, a little bit more disciplined. So you might not recognize that you need a new king, and so today from chapter 3 of Luke, verses 1 to 17, I want to show you some signs, five signs that will help us understand that it's time for a new king and what we have to do to welcome him. So let's go to Luke. Luke chapter 3 begins this way. I'm going to break our passage up this morning into, into small chunks. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Etruria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God 
came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the first sign that it's time for a new king that I see is right here. It's this, when God opposes the corrupt power structures that people build for themselves. When God opposes the corrupt power structures of humanity. Luke begins this passage by listing out some leaders for us. Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, um, Pilate, Herod, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas. These are names from history, real, real people from the past. You can Google them, you can, you can read about them in Encyclopedia Britannica. They're real people. Luke is always trying to get us to believe. All the Gospels are meant for us to believe that Jesus came and that he was who he said he was. And, and Luke, in this passage, begins with locating Christ coming in the midst of a time when, when people would recognize what it meant to be led by these people. It wasn't too much longer, maybe 70 years or so, they think some of these Gospels were written after the fact that Christ had come. But they could recall the time when, what it meant to say Tiberius was Caesar. That meant something. It's like saying back when Bush was in control of the U.S. or back when Trudeau was leading us. There was, a, there was a reference to a culture. It sets it in reality, and it's so that we might believe, but it's so that we would also understand what kind of system people were offered to, what, what kind of system people were living under, what kind of system was controlling the people of God, and maybe give us an understanding of what kind of compromises the people of God may have made under such a system. So we have Tiberius, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas, the, the religious leaders, and the other guys in this kind of cooperation for the, the, the military and, and political control of the region. They're all the power players in a system that was corrupt. If you know anything about Roman history, you might understand that as part of this time, there was marked by injustices. This is the system that killed Jesus Christ. It was marked by tyranny at times. It was marked by oppression. It was marked by suspicion. You could be accused of a crime and convicted of the crime without ever having committed the crime. There was exploitation and extortion. There was awful things. And we, can, we in the church will often talk about how bad Rome was because it killed our Savior. But don't forget, in any great civilization, there's also opportunities for people to, to advance themselves. There's culture, and there's art, and there's fine dining, and there's freedoms, and there's entertainments. There's, there's um, power to be made, to be had, and peace to be experienced, and business opportunities, and fashion. So we need to understand that while this culture had some awful things in it, there was some beauty in this culture. This picture here, um, according to my sources on the internet, tell me, that uh, this is the kind of art, and as I look at that, that color blue and, and the art, artistic stuff there, I realize that we can come into a corrupt system and we might not notice it because there'll be things like this that we admire. Things of it that we say, you know what, I don't want to see the whole system as bad. I want to go to that museum and look at this. I want to look at the statues. I want to look at the wealth. I want to look at the jewelry. I want to look at all the fine things. I want to enjoy the fine food. I want to, to, to take in the entertainment at the Colosseum. I want to... I want to uh, sample the exports from the, from the different trade lands. And so as people of God, we live in these systems, we may understand that they're corrupt, but we don't necessarily hate them. We learn to, to make a way for ourselves in these systems. And when you're living in the time of um, Tiberius Caesar and you're a person of God, you had to become skilled in making a way for yourself. And in doing that, it might have required you to tolerate what was offensive to God to forget what God had said about how he wanted people to live. And people would, do, would make these compromises, would make these tolerances because it worked, just like we have to do in Canada. It works, it allows us to get ahead. It allows us actually, as upper class people, sometimes to make a little more profit, to live in a little bit more safety, to have a little bit better life for the people that we're raising, to, have, to enjoy a type of work that is interesting, introduces us to interesting people. And we say, you know, under such a reign, I can't live for God completely. I must live this kind of compromised way, getting by, getting ahead, managing, building some wealth. It, it, makes, it only makes sense. They, they control such a vast area. We're just such a small part of this system. 
we're wise people. We have to fit in. We have to, we have to figure out how to live in this situation. So when we say it was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, while it's not too much on the page, the people understood, as you should understand now, that this was a time when people looked at this vast system of control, this great Roman Empire, and said, I don't know. I'm not sure I could live sold out for Christ in this situation. I'm not sure I could live according to God's way, so I'm going to have to learn to get by. I'm going to have to be street savvy. I'm going to have to tolerate a little sin. I'm going to have to look a little, little turn my head from injustice. I'm going to have to get along, and maybe if I do that, I can also get safe and, and gain some power and some control over my life. I'd rather be I'd rather use this system to my advantage than be abused by it. So I love verse 3 as it speaks to this because it says, it's into this situation that the word of God came to John. Into that big map, God has spoken. And he sends his message to one man, John. And John is at the fringe of this culture of these cities, of these towns, and he's preaching a message saying, it's time for you to understand that a new king is coming, and you need to be ready for him. And he's doing this because God was actually opposed to this type of corrupt rule and reign. The leaders in the system they ran failed to produce righteousness for many. Their system failed, as all human efforts will It failed to produce salvation for humanity. God's word was set against the leadership of Jesus' day in three ways. God's word meant that he was higher than Tiberius, Caesar. He reigned over Rome. God's authority was a better authority than the cultural opinion of the day. He still had reign over the Herods, over the Philips and Lysanus. These guys were the, were the governors in the culture. Rome had made compromises with, with these fellows, with these guys, because they understood what it meant to lead in that area. They understood the culture. They understood the tactics. They understood how they were going to function. And, and these guys set the tone for the area. And God's word spoke over top of them. He, he was a better authority than the cultural opinion of the day. And then finally, God's word was a greater authority than the religion of the day. He spoke over the authority of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. God's word comes into this situation and it directs John, the forerunner forerunner of Jesus Christ. And it comes and sets John to address this system from the wilderness, from the edge. He speaks to it and says, this is not the way God wants for his people. So as I see the opening of of this passage, I understand this. That God's in authority. His word comes to these corrupt situations, and he comes with the message that there's a new king. And if we, in our lives, seek to set up a corrupt system for ourselves, we need a new king. You might have a a system of corruption in your work. You might have a a broken system in your home. You might have a broken system amongst your friends. It's in that situation that you don't need a resolution. You need a new king. The second sign that it's time for a new king comes from the next three verses in the passage, verses four through six. Begins with the phrase, as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Three of the Gospels actually pick up on this connection with Isaiah, Luke, Matthew, and Mark. And John sees this connection in Isaiah. It comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And this is an original prophecy where Isaiah says, I, want, I have an announcement of comfort for the people of God. Comfort for the people of God. We should go back there and take a look together. Isaiah chapter 40. Keep your finger back in Luke. We'll be back there in a moment. But you recognize these words 
In verse one it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's word into this situation. Tied now with the history of prophecy, and we have this idea that when God is ready, uh, it's time for a new king, when God is ready to advance his reign deeper into our hearts. I'm going to explain that. This, This prophecy was in a context of comfort because Jerusalem's sin would be forgiven and paid for. Her punishment, her hard work, the trial that she had received because of her sin was, was over. And the Lord was coming with the reward, the reward of his presence. So this was good news. And it was good news when Isaiah promised it. It was good news when John preached it. And it's good news for us today. It's comfort that we have a Messiah. It's comfort that that our sins are going to be forgiven. It's comfort that he's coming with the reward of his presence. So John was announcing the coming of Messiah, and the whole world was looking for this. And so the reality was that since Messiah, since the anointed one, since the Christ was coming, the people now had to prepare. And this is a point that that I found interesting. The preparation for Messiah happens in advance, not after Christ came, but because he was coming. John called people to righteousness before Christ showed up. Often I think, if I go to church, then I'll get better. If I go to Christ, then I'll improve. But John's call to the people was, you know the Christ is coming. You need to get ready for him to show up. If you're expecting his presence, he connects this idea to repentance. But first he, hears, he says, you need to be prepared So this prophecy calls for the construction of a highway. I think this is a picture of the 407 being constructed. If you've been driving around, you've noticed all of this, and um, some of you will know that I have an engineering background, and I I like seeing these huge earth movers and big trucks and all this kind of stuff kicking around, and I'm looking at the maps, and it's just magnificent, all the work that goes into preparing a road, all the effort ahead of time, right? And you know how we do this kind of road work? It's so people can have direct access, right? They're making the 407 so that you can have direct access to the other side of the GTA, right? We have a couple other ones that have been built already. We have the Don Valley Parkway and, and the Gardner, and you need those to be, get the direct access to downtown Toronto, make things easier. So when when this prophecy calls us to build a highway, it's calling us to create direct access for God, our King, to come into our lives, into our hearts. And there's work that needs to be done. In fact, the prophecy says there's four activities that needed to be done. He, said, he says, you will need to raise up the low places, deal with the valleys. We need to bring down the high places, get rid of the, the mountains in the way, straighten the crooked places, and level the uneven places. I want to talk about these things more at the end of the time that we have this morning, but for now I want to say, here's what we shouldn't do with these things. When we're told to, to, to raise up a low place, it's not going to be satisfactory for us to build a bridge. A bridge doesn't fill in the gap. A bridge just makes an easy way over. We're not looking to build bridges. We're not looking to, to deal with the Lord's coming in a, in a bridging kind of way, just with sticking a stick over a gap in our lives and saying, oh, that, that'll cover it, okay? We're not looking to avoid these pits in our lives. When, when it comes to a mountain, some, some issue of perhaps spiritual pride, we're not looking to make a tunnel through it. When you make a tunnel, you actually have to structure the mountain. I don't know if you think about this, but maybe if you've ever had the chance to play in a snowbank and you started digging a hole into the side of a big snow tunnel, right? Eventually, if you dug out too much, the whole thing would collapse, right? So when you, when you try to make a tunnel in a mountain, instead of knocking the whole thing down, you actually have to structure the mountain. You have to keep it up. 
So you can't deal with a mountain of pride by making a tunnel through it and say, here's an easy way for Jesus to get through. You have to bring down that mountain. Straighten the crooked roads. When roads are crooked, if the, if the path goes like this, often we will make shortcuts. We'll take shortcuts. If I'm supposed to go left, then right, then left, and then right again and come back and go around this way, often we'll look to make a shortcut to make it easier. No shortcuts are going to be accepted. And then when it comes to level and uneven places, I just keep thinking about our parking lot several years ago. There's a church over on, on um, Adelaide Street that's suffering from the same thing. And there's a, at a point at which we realized patches were not going to help. Patching over the uneven parts, the parts where it was wavy and level, those weren't going to help. They're just gonna, the, the, the whole foundation needed to be repaired. So we had these instructions, raise up the low places, bring down the high places, straighten the crooked places, level the uneven places. Because God wants direct access to his people. That's why there's a road. That's what the preparation is. So in 2015, we need to to make sure that we're keeping a direct, open, 50-lane highway into our hearts so that God can move in and out of our lives with ease and bring in what he wants and bring out of it what he wants. So John exhorted his people to prepare the way ahead of Christ's coming. This is the work of faith. This is work that must be done in advance. This is work that only gets done if we believe that Christ is coming. But we prepare the way because we look forward to his presence. So that's the second sign. Uh, it's when God wants to move into deeper into our hearts. The third sign that it's time for a new king, let's go back to Luke, is when the people of God attempt to stand on family history and religious ceremony rather than repent from sin. Verses seven to nine. John said, as John's been preaching now, the crowds are coming. So John says to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So I find this to be uh, a bit striking because John is this preacher from the desert and he's preaching a message of repentance and people come to him, crowds, crowds like you guys come to him and he has the opportunity to see these crowds, they're coming out to be baptized, they're coming out to listen to what he has to say and he he addresses them this way, you bunch of snakes, you snake-like people. And I just think if, if we pastoral staff did that as a greeting for you on a Sunday morning, you would not be very happy with us. It doesn't seem to be the kind of greeting you would expect when you show up here on a Sunday morning, some of you for two services, and we love that, to serve and and to get ready and to go through what we have prepared for you, that we would greet you and say, you're a snake. You remind me of of these serpentine things. And and so that caught my attention. You know, why is John risking his ministry? He's got crowds. He's got people coming to be baptized. Why would he insult them? What's the insult all about? You shouldn't be insulting people who come out to respond to your message, but John does. He calls them a brood of vipers. I hope none of you are uncomfortable with snakes. I know some people have that fear of snakes, but these ones aren't real and they won't come off the screen as as realistically as our high-end graphics make them appear. So this insult is recorded in all the Gospels, and, and Matthew takes a look at these, these snakes and says it's because there were Sadducees and Pharisees in the crowd. And every time we hear Pharisees and Sadducees, we all know from, from when our earliest days in church that you just boo those people. Boo, hiss, it's Sadducees. Boo, hiss, it's Pharisees. Those guys are bad. I don't want to be a Pharisee. No way. I don't want to be a Sadducee. You remember the song, because they're Sadducee. I'm recalling my days in early church. Right, but we're taught, these guys are the bad guys, but I want you to note, in Luke's account, he mentions nothing about Pharisees or Sadducees. 
He's not addressing this insult to them particularly, which makes me uncomfortable because I always knew I wasn't a Pharisee, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't a Sadducee, but I might be a viper. I might be a snake. I might be one of these people that that John called this out to. Because in this passage, Luke wants to address an audience that's not in these categories of Pharisee and Sadducee. He's actually addressing an upper-class audience, a class of of, um, show-and-tell Christians, I'm going to call them. But why would he call them snakes? What, 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 What might they have had in common with snakes in that region? Well, snakes in that region, I had to do some research. I've only seen garter snakes in my life. And the little ones you get in the garden. Um, we don't have the kind of attacking snakes that they have in the Israeli region. But they have venomous snakes and vipers. Um, and so what's, what do they have in common? Well, uh, snakes are dangerous. They hold venom in their mouths. These people may have been false teachers. They may have been misleading others. They may have been lying about things. They, they may have been gossiping. Snakes um, take their prey by surprise. They use treachery and they're sneaky. They strike from remote positions. They jump down on you from trees. They, they strike at your leg when you step into the leaves. They, that's why we're all afraid of them. They're always going to jump out at us from some, from sneaky, some, some sneaky spot, right? And, and in this culture, in order to get ahead and, and advantage yourself, sometimes you had to, to work in a covert way to bring down others using false accusation, accusations. Sometimes they would jump on you like they pounced on Jesus to seize him and arrest him without a fair trial. People could steal from you. People could murder. The other thing that it might, reminded, might have reminded John about was the serpent in the garden that led Eve astray into sin. The reputations of these people, that they weren't living for God, that they weren't living for his rule, reminded John of Satan. So John, with his insult, is actually being pastoral. He's actually trying to get their attention. He's trying to get them not to make the same mistake as they go forward that they've been making behind them. He says, it's not going to be enough for you to be show and tell. They were coming out to John because they wanted to get in on this new kingdom. They wanted to get this baptism. They wanted to to make sure they had conformed with the command. But John said, you need to understand that this new king wants you to have fruit in your heart. He wants there to be a lifestyle change. And they were in danger of not getting that. And if they didn't make the change, they would be judged by this king. If they had no repentance, if they only made a resolution, I'm going to get in at the start, but I'm not actually going to let it change the way I am, they were going to be judged by this king. So he told them, you need to produce fruit, produce a life, Produce a character, produce the works that are in keeping with repentance. Repentance being a change of mind so that you understand that God is the authority, that God is the one that defines sin, that God is the one that should direct you to decide what you need to do in your life that's moral or immoral, that God is the one that can tell you what the mission is today. You need to make your mind up about that and choose to go God's way. Otherwise, you're just serving yourself. You're just trying to fit in to that greater system of control, the corrupt system. These people thought they could please this new king by saying, well, you know, the Messiah's coming. We're going to impress him. We're going to tell him about our our pedigree. That's one of Pastor Rick's words that I like when he says pedigree, our, our spiritual pedigree, our heritage, right? They said, look, We're going to be good with this Messiah. Abraham is our ancestor. And God promised things to Abraham. And by default, because this promise was made to Abraham and we are Abraham's seed, we are going to get the benefits promised to God's people. They also said, hey, plus, if we do this baptism thing that you're talking about, John, if we go into the tank, if we let you, you know, put us under the water, if we go back to the temple, if we give our offerings and our tithes, we'll be good. We followed all the rules. We've done the ceremony. We're Baptist. We were raised Baptist. We went to church every day, filled out the attendance card. We've got it. When Jesus comes, I'm going to hand him my Baptist card. And he's going to say, that's what I was looking for. And John says, no. Your heritage, your ceremonies, 
They don't matter if there's no repentance, if there's no real change in the way you're living. So John stuck a pin in their pretense and burst the bubble that they were living in. They thought they were doing okay. They thought they were ready for the Messiah, but they had not yet repented. The Christ, Jesus, the baby who grew up to become our leader, wants us to have a change of mind and heart. So he warned us, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, or else you'll be cut out of the kingdom. The fourth sign that it's time for a new king comes from verses 10 to 14. So the people hear this message and they're confused. They're, they're saying, you know, what, what should we do? If, if it's not about being related to Abraham, if it's not about keeping all the things, all this stuff we've been doing, all this, all this pretense we've had in our lives, what do we need to do then to be ready for this king? The crowd asked, verse 11. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The sign is this. When God, it's time for a new king, when God is seeking justice and care for the poor and needy people within and around his community. I know it's a very specific application, but, but Luke doesn't leave us much room. He picks up on this one thing out of the whole culture and, 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 and says there's injustices here. There's a lack of care for the very least and the marginalized. He might have picked up on the prophetic voices or the kind of things that James, James used to write about and say, you know, we can't consider ourselves righteous if if within our own community we have no commitment to justice for the poor, or we we can't consider ourselves righteous and ready for the the Messiah to be in our lives and be present with us if we don't take care of the basic needs of the poor people among us. And so John told the people, this is what it means for you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I already mentioned to you that it was an upper-class crowd We're not looking to this crowd to define them as Pharisees and Sadducees today. We need to understand that these were people that had much. They had means and they had might. Like many of us, they have resources. They have the abilities to accomplish what they want in this society. And they have the power to do it. And so John addresses them, telling them, this is what repentance needs to look like for you. To those that had much, just the general people in the crowd, he says, you need to share from the much. Needed resources in your community should not be withheld from those that have none. It seems so basic, but if someone has two and someone has nothing, each of you should end up with one. Something as simple as a winter coat Hopefully in our church there would be no one here struggling in the cold this winter because none of us can't share one of our extra coats. I happen to have now four winter coats. I still have one body. I only wear one at a time. But it would be ridiculous for me to hold on to those and have someone leave here today walking out in the cold shivering. You know what else I have a lot of to do with the code? Cold? You know what it is. Hats. That's right. Lots of toques. So those with much should share. To the next group was the tax collectors. These, this group of people is a little bit different than us. We all hate tax collectors. It's easy. That one's simple. That never changes. Um, but the tax collectors had the means and they had the mandate from the government to actually rip the people off. They got rich off of cheating other people out of their own profits. They exploited the system's weaknesses for their personal gain. I know that doesn't sound like any of us. When I think of people from this congregation, I go, is it, is it like that guy? 
No, that's not really like him. Is it like me? Would I really exploit a system for my personal gain such that someone else suffered? And I think I would. In fact, I think I do. It's a little bit playful, but, you know, I start practicing it like um, whenever I find myself busy at, uh, at Costco and I see a line of people that is so long and I start looking for a way that I might be able to use my privilege as a way of getting through the line. It, it's a stretch. But sometimes, sometimes I'll say, I'm a busy person. I'm buying all these resources for Calvary Baptist Church and I have an appointment in an hour. Can you bump me up to the front of the line? Right? Privilege, I'm working the system for my advantage. Who cares about everybody else that's in front of me? Another one that I know that we do it, strategies for making telemarketers or not tel- uh, um, when you call a company and you're supposed to get the help through their company, right? And you yell at them, you bark at them, you, you make them submit to you to get what you want. You make that person feel so small until you accomplish your purpose. I learned this strategy from Christians. There are things you can say. Go over their head. Um, call this person up. You know, tell them they can do better. You just belittle them, belittle them, belittle them until you accomplish what you want. The system gives us the means to do that. We have the mandate to do that. We understand. We can use that. But John said we shouldn't do that. And the last one were the soldiers. They had might, but they weren't to use it for extortion. The soldiers could extract money from people through physical threats and seizure of property. Who could stop them? They were the police. They were the army. They had all the guns. They had all the knives. They had all the weapons. They had all the rights. They were Tiberius's guard. If you look up Sejanus in history, you'll find out that he was a ruthless soldier, and he, he used his position to make things worse for many people, murdered Tiberius's son, staged himself up for power, and led the people in tyranny. So I think, what would cause people to do these things? None of us grows up thinking I'm not going to share. None of us grows up thinking I'm going to exploit people. None of us grows up thinking I'm going to take advantage of others, but yet we become those people, even God's people. Why do we get that way? How does that happen to us? Well, it happens because we find ourselves, even today, much like in Rome, in a system where God is not in control. And over many years, over many, many years and decades, we start to realize that our leaders... The system doesn't seem to work for us when we only choose to serve God. And then we make this subtle switch. It's time for me to serve myself. And we start making the compromises. We start looking at some people as being exploitable, some people as being expendable, so that we can protect our own families, so that we can protect our own wealth, so that I can advance my career, so that I can have something to pass on to my family, so that I can have a nice piece of land, or a cottage, or an extra car, or any of these things, and it happens slowly. Because in a corrupt system, it's not bad for everybody, just the poor and the needy. The last sign. It's time for a new king when God is ready to hold us accountable for personal righteousness. We start to transition into Luke's next thought with these next two verses. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This passage ends with this threat of judgment. A warning. Again, twice in this passage we have this warning that the Messiah, the Christ, the baby that we sang about at Christmas, who needs to become our king, that he's coming looking for righteousness from his people. John 
taught them correctly that he was not the Messiah. In fact, prophetically, John was considered Elijah. Some of you know that. But you can look back and and see there was prophecies about someone that would be the forerunner of Christ coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And John represents that figure well. But he was not the Christ. He was a different leader. The Christ was someone of greater value than him. He He said, my baptism is only of water. Water is an external cleansing agent. It'll just make you clean. It'll just a ceremony. But the Christ is going to baptize you with spirit and fire. The spirit to cleanse you from the inside out. To, to sanctify the heart of who you are. To change you so that you conform to his character. So that over time, and as you submit, and as you obey, and as you learn, you become more like the person God envisions all of his people to be. And the fire is a purification agent to refine us, to deal with the impurities in our life, so that as we go through that trial, that test, that that fire, it's it's an agent of blessing for us because it purifies us and refines the life of the person. So the Christ who wants to hold us accountable for personal righteousness, is coming to to set us up so that we can be righteous by putting the Spirit inside of us and leading us through tough times like fires, trials in our lives, things that will refine us, things that are going to bring about the righteousness that he desires. Because the Messiah was coming to hold his people accountable for their sin. People in Israel wanted to be saved from the painful situation of being led by the leaders of the day. They wanted to be saved from the discomfort of being led in a corrupt system. That was their dream. But Christ's dream was to save them from their sinfulness. And it's different. Even today, our hearts might cry out just to be getting out of trouble. Get me out from under that. My father-in-law always likes to call his, I won't say which people that he works with, but he likes to call some of the people in his system that he works for doofuses. Right? It just breaks his heart to work there. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't inspire him. Bad things happen. We, we work in these systems. And sometimes we're in that system or in that kind of family or in that kind of circle of life, and we say, God, save me from this situation. But we need to understand, when we're praying to God asking for salvation from a situation, God is answering saying, I'm going to save you from your sinfulness. That's what my Savior's here to do. And I'm going to help you make a change. He's not coming to call, call us into conflict with the leaders in our life. He's coming to provide a way of living above the corruption that plagues the human condition. And this is the freedom that he offers us now. Messiah is not meant to overthrow the evil around us. He's doing that. That will ultimately be what he does. His ministry is to overthrow the effect of sin inside us so that we can produce the kind of life he desires to see. So how do we respond with these signs? How do we keep the hatchet or the, the ax from coming and, and cutting down the, our spiritual lives so that we can be in this kingdom? I would take you back to the instructions of the road. Raise up the valley, bring down the mountain, make the crooked path straight, level the uneven parts. I'd like to suggest to you that as you go forward, not with resolutions, but with repentance. That we need to be thinking about these things in a, in a, as they apply to our lives so that God can have direct access. Raising up the valleys. In 2015, what is this going to mean? Well, as, as, as clear as I can paint the picture, this means that we need to deal with the moral deficiencies in our lives. There are things that are lacking in the way we respond to Christ. Holes, gaps, valleys, things that can't be covered with just a stick across the pit, but things that have to be filled in with moral character and good stuff. So if if you look at your life and you look back at 2014 and you say, hey, there was a bunch of good stuff I didn't do that I should have done, I think what this might mean is, is putting in the good stuff that's lacking from your life, the right stuff, the kinds of things and behavior that you should be applying. What about the mountains? Well, the mountains to me might be spiritual pride. The religious high points in our life 
the ceremonies we've been part of, the history that we've had, the things that make us say, I've got pedigree, I, have, I should have advanced standing in the kingdom, I should automatically be in, never be allowed to be, escape, to be put out. We need to look at these things as pride that keeps Christ from coming directly into our hearts. And instead of trying to put a tunnel through it that allows us to keep the mountain, we need to bring those mountains down. This morning as I was praying with people for this message, they reminded me that God loves humility. Let me just remind you, pride does not work in church. I'm not looking at you, it's my glasses. But see, I take them off, but I can't do that Rick thing because I'm blind. You need to straighten out the crooked, crooked paths. This is a little different. What's it like for God to get to you? Does he have to come from the right and then go to the left and move back and, and make, have you made it a maze to get to your heart? Do you have so many walls? Have you made it difficult for him to come in? Have your appetites for sin led you on this wandering path and as God tries to get to you, he's having to visit you over here and over here and back there and over here? If that's the case, you need to get rid of those appetites. You need to get rid of the crookedness in your life. You need to make a straight path. And that means leaving these things that we've learned to, to live with in our society of corruption, brought them into our lives because they make us wealthy or make us feel safe or give us power. We need to let those things go. Straighten the path. And finally, level the rugged ways. The words talk about a road that's uneven. The roads were built with rocks, and sometimes it would get set at a place, like a path at your house, and, and there'd be parts that were up and parts that were lower. The foundation was messed up. In our lives, the foundation of obedience is always built on truth. And let me suggest to you that in 2015, if, if there are errors in the foundation of your theology, or if there are philosophies that you've embraced that are wrong, it's time for you to address those. They sit like raised stones, and when someone comes into your life to be the Lord, they've got to manage to walk over those things. They've got, they're in the way. They're, not that the Lord is going to get tripped up, but if you wanted to make things easy for them, you would set those stones in place, build the right foundation. We want to help you with that as we go forward in our, in our series to come in DCs. You need to level the rugged ways. It's time for a new king. In 2015, it's time for a new king. You've been leading yourself, or you've been submitting to the leadership of other people, but now it's time for you to submit. There's no other way you're going to become the person that Christ wants you to be unless you follow him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your son. I thank you for the help he is, the light he is, and the direction he is, Lord. He came to be our king. And I pray, Lord, that we would submit to him. Lord, would you put him at the center? Would we seek to build him into the center of our lives? We're talking about 2015, but Lord, we're really talking about a day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute devotion. Lord, we pray that you'd help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go into a new year, it's this song that we sing that must be our prayer. We want Jesus at the center of our lives, which means we need to do the work in advance of his coming to prepare the way. So my challenge to you as my congregation, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, friends that are coming close and people that are seeking to improve as Christians, we need to do the work that we've been called to do. That's the only response to this message. We need to look carefully and make sure there's nothing in the way. We've been calling you to, do that, you to do this all year long. This is the, not the resolution, but the repentance we need to make for 2015. So I want to just bless you and encourage you and exhort you to go and prepare the way for the Lord. Father, we thank you for this day. We offer it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.